0: Amen. Good. I want to mention, I want to point something out to you about a hymn we sang, but before we open to Zephaniah, here is the song, uh, the third stanza from God of grace and God of glory that Laura Susan led us in, number 92. Listen to this. I don't, I don't want you to miss this because it, maybe it was a little unfamiliar and you're trying to figure out the notes. And so l- listen, cure thy children's warring madness. Bend our pride to thy control, shame our wanton selfish gladness, rich in things and poor in soul. Oh, that's really good. Uh, th- that could be a prayer. Uh, that's one of the reasons I think it's important for us to stay in touch and recapture and remember and sing these old hymns because they are theologically and devotionally and doctrinally robust. And that could not just be a song that we sing, but even. prayer that you pray. So thank you for choosing that song, Lord Susan. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Zephaniah, this rather small and um, somewhat um, obscure Old Testament prophet. Uh, In fact, I want you to do something as you flip into Zephaniah. uh, Go to the table of contents. It's been a few weeks since we've done this. I just want you to, I want to reorient you on the flow of the the, the table of contents of and the, the order of the books in your Old Testament. So, go to, I want you to see this and how they're organized. And I think it'll actually help you um, just as a refresher on how to even think about where you are in the Old Testament timeline. So, if you're looking at your table of contents in the Old Testament, of course, we are all familiar with Genesis uh, there at the beginning and then Malachi at the end. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the law or the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, obviously tracing the beginning of creation and then the the origin of Israel and the giving of the law. And then you get into Joshua um, all the way really through uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So those first books from Genesis to Esther... Are really the historical books of the Old Testament. That's the narratives. It's actually telling the story. So the whole history of the Old Testament is in those books. Uh, really, Nehemiah is kind of the end of it, and Esther sort of uh, a, a sort of scene um, parallel to that. But that's the end of it. That's so that's the whole history, and then Job. Through Song of Solomon is what we call the wisdom literature. It's the songbook, the Proverbs. Obviously, these special books, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Job are uh, drawing out human experience, and they are not meant to be chronological. They're just sort of of bubbles outside of, sort of uh, uh, to stand along with, intermixed along the way. In fact, Job is very early, probably around the time of Abraham, Psalms are all throughout the history of God's people. Uh, Proverbs is primarily coming through Solomon. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are things, these are uh, uh, written, embedded in the history, but this is called the wisdom literature. And then Isaiah, through Malachi, the, the prophets um, split up into the major and minor prophets, are all speaking back into the history from Genesis to Esther and so we find ourselves now in Zephaniah which is one of the minor prophets was we've been looking at minor prophets and Zephaniah now go back to Zephaniah Zephaniah is speaking to he's speaking to primarily Judah which is the southern kingdom so here's what's happening in the most of the prophets especially in the minor prophets is they are speaking to a divided people Israel, in a broad sense, has been divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And, and Zephaniah is one of the prophets that is raised up to speak to Judah in the south. And what has happened, where we are, we're about 600 B.C. So about 120 years before that, the northern kingdom of Israel which was much more wicked in many ways than the southern kingdom of Judah. And I know that's confusing because sometimes we'll refer to Israel and actually most of the time we'll refer to Israel as the whole the whole people. But in this sense, Israel is the northern kingdom and Judah is the southern kingdom. About 120 years before this, Israel has been taken captive. They've been overrun by Assyria. And now Zephaniah is prophesying to the southern kingdom Judah they've had actually a really good king and his name is Josiah and he actually brought about a lot of reform but he made kind of a bad decision and didn't listen to the Lord on the battlefield and it ends up getting him killed and now after the death of this good king Judah is starting to slip and they're about to go the way of their northern brothers and sisters Israel and they're about to be taken over by the Babylonian empire. So really, Zephaniah is prophesying a few years before that uh, eventual fall of the southern kingdom, where then you actually have both Israel in the north and Judah in the south in captivity, and um, it's just a real time of exile and sorrow amongst God's people. And so Zephaniah is very short. If you could sum up Uh, the, the theme of Zephaniah, it would be the day of the Lord, really the day of the Lord's judgment. And I think the message and the flow of Zephaniah is actually really quite simple. Like a lot of the other minor prophets, it is a warning with a call to repentance and then a promise of gospel salvation. It's a warning of judgment. That's kind of part number one. Secondly, it's a call to repentance. And thirdly, it's a promise of salvation. So let's first look at the, a warning of judgment in Zephaniah. So this is, how, this is how Zephaniah starts out. We'll read a good bit of it. Not all of it, obviously, but a good bit of it. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. That's Josiah, the good king, who did a lot of good things, but died sort of unexpectedly because of a bad decision on the battlefield and Judah starting to sink. And this is what the Lord has Zephaniah say. Listen to this, this cheerful message from Zephaniah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked i will cut off mankind from the face of the earth declares the lord i will stretch out my hand against judah and against all the inhabitants of jerusalem and i will cut off from this place the remnant of baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests who those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens to those who bow down and swear to the lord and yet swear by milcom those who have turned their back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of them. So he's speaking to God's people, the people of Judah in the southern kingdom, and their bad leaders for their syncretism. They're mixing with the false gods of the people that they are intermingling with, and God is judging them. And we see this is what, I mean, what what an opening statement where God is promising to really reverse creation. He's going to actually... Decreate everything. There's actually beautiful and striking symbolism, not so beautiful, but striking symbolism and parallelism between the first six verses of Zephaniah and the beginning of the creation account in Genesis. How actually the promise of God's judgment here is, in a way, kind of going to decreate the same order of creation that He did in Genesis 1 and 2. And this is this harsh word, a warning of judgment. And then laced throughout the rest of chapter 2 and into uh, chapter 1 and 2 and some into 3, we see this phrase, the day of the Lord come up over and over and over again. It's a warning of this day when God will judge not just Judah, but also the nations. So look at verse 7 of chapter 1. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Verse 9, on that day... I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. 10, verse 10, chapter 1. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Verse 14 of chapter 1. The great day of the Lord is near. The sound, the near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. Then verse 15 and 16 is just full of it. A day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thickness and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Verse 18, neither silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Now, this, is, this, this phrase, the day of the Lord, we see it in chapter 2. Again, day of the Lord, a little bit into chapter 3. Now, our minds immediately jump towards just modern application, and that's a, a, a decent and, and legitimate thing to do. But God is promising in the context for these people a warning if they don't repent. And he doesn't even mention the Babylonians, who are the ones that are actually going to be the instrument by which he actually brings about the promise of this day. So what happens about 20 years from this prophecy is that God's people in Judah, by and large, do not repent. And this great day of the Lord comes in about 585 BC through the hands of the Babylonian Empire. And they sack Judah and they sack Jerusalem. And basically all of this happens. The day of the Lord has come and judgment has come upon, uh, has come upon God's people. But as we read this, we think about kind of the, the sort of the two mountaintops of, of really biblical prophecy. There's a, there's a near term fulfillment, but that near term fulfillment is picturing something in the future. So even though Babylon actually brings about this near time, end time fulfillment of this prophecy that Zephaniah gives. It's a shadow. All of these promises of judgment have a kind of new covenant application in the coming of the ultimate day of the Lord. Not when Babylon is his instrument, but when Christ comes to judge all the wicked and those that do not repent. And let me just read to you uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, which sort of encompasses the, the guilt of both Jerusalem or Judah and the nations and it's a, it's a description not only of the spirituality of the people in that time, but also really in this time. Listen to this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no criticism. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, Treacherous men, her priests profane what is holy, they do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous, he does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice, each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. And I would say that we, that last sentence, the unjust know no shame, certainly was a description of the spirituality of Judah and the nations at that time. And isn't it a description of our culture? in this day. We live in a land that knows no shame. So the first thing I just want us to see at this point is that there is this warning of judgment. Secondly, as we see in all of the prophets, in their words and warnings of judgment, there is a call to repent. And that call to repent, that gospel call, we can even say, is embedded within chapters 1 and 2 and 3, these warnings. And we see it at the beginning of chapter 2. This is God in the first three verses of chapter 2. Even as he is telling Judah that I am going to judge you and I'm going to judge all the nations around you and the day of the Lord is coming and it's going to swallow you up, he still calls for them to repent. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Gather together. Yes, gather together, O oh shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chafe, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do this, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So do you see the, the, this is remarkable. Do you see the the authority of God, the, the promise of judgment of God if they don't repent, and yet embedded within that call to repent, that warning of judgment, is this offer of grace if they will turn. So if part number one is the warning of judgment, part number two is the call to repent, then part number three is the promise of salvation, which we find in chapter 3. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 9 takes a turn and he says, after all this judgment comes, then, and this is the promise of the new covenant, it's that God will actually save these people ultimately from himself by himself. So chapter 3, verse 9, for at that time, a change is happening now, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them they call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. So do you see this? It's just grace. God is forecasting, he is foreshadowing the gospel of grace. He's not saying eventually, maybe if you repent, he's saying on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted. I will deal with the sin amongst you, and I will save you. Let's skip down to verse 14. He says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord, the Lord, listen, verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Notice who's doing it there. It's not Israel. It's the Lord who does it. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, and this is one of the most beautiful verses in the prophets, verse 17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So do you see what's happening here? Just to remind us of the flow, there's this warning of judgment to both Judah and her enemies. There's this embedded in that, secondly, a call to repent, an offer to relent in judgment if they will repent. And ultimately, when that does not happen, as the Lord knows, there is this promise of salvation where the Lord will not ultimately wait on his people, he will do it for them, and he will bring about salvation in their midst. And he will not only save them, he will rejoice, this is glorious, he will rejoice over them with gladness. That's the kind of outline of the message of Zephaniah. Here's three takeaways. Here's three takeaways from Zephaniah, uh, as maybe you want to read it later. You can read it in, I think, about 12 minutes. I timed myself this week. I read Zephaniah all the way through slowly in 12 minutes. So uh, it would be a wonderful wonderful short minor prophet to read. Here's takeaway number one. God's wrath is not at odds with his love. God's wrath is not at odds with his love. Uh, The theme, really... The primary note, the major note of Zephaniah is the promise of the day of the Lord's anger poured out on his rebellious people and also the nations, the Gentile nations. And this is not like some other component of God as if God has stopped being loving, but God's wrath poured out on the rebellion of his people is actually part of his love. How so? How can we piece that together? Well, I think as we read the rest of the Bible and we become more acquainted with the character of God, the attributes of God, we realize that they can't be separated. And God is holy. And he cannot abide with unholiness. And so it would be unloving of God To brush over or to not deal justly or to not maintain his holiness or to leave people in their sin. And so when God executes his wrath, it isn't merely just to punish sin, but it is to preserve his holiness and ultimately to redeem a people for himself, which is the most loving thing he can do. And I know in our Western 21st century mindset, that is a hard concept for people to grasp. But as you spend time in the world and the culture of the Bible, what starts to happen to you is you start to see that the center of the universe is God's glory, not ours. And when God's glory becomes the center of the universe, you realize that, the, if I can put it this way, the maintenance, the upholding, the continued preservation of God's holiness is actually the most loving thing that God can do for everybody else, all of his creation. And that's a radically God-centered way of looking at things, but I think it's a biblical way of looking at things. And so whenever you see warnings of judgment, especially in the prophets, and you see God being wrathful, don't buy into this misperception of Scripture that somehow God in the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and somehow in the New Testament he lightens up a little bit and he's a God of love. No, those two attributes of God are not at odds. They're inseparable. They're part of God who is holy. And God's love is shown in his wrath to preserve his holiness for the benefit of his people. Takeaway number two. God offers the gospel to all who will repent. And I think I want to make an accent of that. I think you guys know that I am unashamedly, theologically soteriologically reformed. I uh, would believe that John Calvin's teaching on salvation are just a good summary of what the Bible teaches. I believe that God has an elect, that he has a particular people in eternity past, that he has set his affection on unconditionally, and that he guarantees that all those and only those will make it all the way to heaven in glorification. I believe that Romans chapter 8, verse 30 settles this case. Those whom, are, those whom he called, every one of them, not one more, not one less, he also justified. And those whom he justified, not one more, not one less, he also glorified. So there's an airtight chain there. That all those that he predestines, he calls. And all those that he calls, he justifies. And all those that he justifies, he glorifies. I believe that. I believe God knows that. I believe he's known that from the beginning of time. There is a people. He has a people. And he will bring them all safely home. I believe that. But that's from God's perspective outside of creation. We live in creation. And I, I think people like me who are reformed and believe in the utter exhaustive sovereignty of God and salvation should not let that produce in them any hinge or any stinginess with the free offer of the gospel or belief that real everybody has a real decision to make to repent and believe the gospel. He tells these people, if you will do this, then I will relent. And I believe that's true. I believe that's true. It makes me think of John chapter 6 when Jesus says that this is the food, this is the meat that you should endure for, this is what you should strive for, this is the work of God that you believe. And he's telling mostly uh, an unrepentant, unregenerate crowd at that time. I remember that wonderful quote from J.C. Ryle who said we shouldn't make uh, the Bible more systematic than it is. Now, I believe in what you would call the five points of Calvinism. I think they're just another way of summarizing the Bible. But I never want to let that somehow produce in me any sense that the gospel should not be given to all and God will do whatever he wants with that gospel and that every sinner has a responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. That's why I love Spurgeon so much because he used to pray often, Lord, and this was just so classic Spurgeon. Lord, save the elect and elect some more. I love that. And I, I, that's kind of the, the way I want to live with that truth. And then thirdly and finally, we end with this. God saves us from his wrath through the work of his son, Jesus. And that's the promise of the end of Zephaniah, isn't it? We see the foreshadow, although Jesus obviously isn't mentioned in the Old Testament prophets some 600 years before Christ. It's foreshadowed. The, sing aloud, O daughter, Ch- chapter 3. Sing aloud, O daughter, verse 14, rejoice, exult. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. How has He done that? That's an Old Testament summary of the doctrine of propitiation. How can the Lord take away His judgments against you and still be holy? How will the Lord do that? How will the Lord forgive iniquity and take away the judgments when you don't deserve to have the judgments taken away from you by pouring it out on His Son Jesus? That's the gospel in shadow form in verse 15. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear Israel. Friends, who is the king of Israel? It's Christ. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, lest your hand grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And not only will he save, here's this beautiful, come on, verse 17b is glorious. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So, man, that's beautiful. So Jesus doesn't just save us. He's a king who doesn't say, ah, well, bring this guy in. He's a sorry, no-good soldier, but bring him in anyway. He doesn't do that. He saves his people, and he sings over them. And what a remarkable statement of God's joy in his elect. I'm a minute over. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for Zephaniah. Lord, uh, may we not be stingy with the gospel. Uh, May we repent. Uh, we didn't even talk about how this applies, I think, on some level, even on our own sanctification, not just on the redemptive plan of salvation, but, Lord, you call us to turn from uh, our residual sin. And, Lord, the truth of salvation is so glorious that you, you, you send your son, Jesus, to take away the judgments from us. So may we rejoice in that. May we offer that freely to the world. And may you encourage us with these words. In Jesus' name, amen.